Please uh, turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and as you do that, again, just a very happy Mother's Day. I hope that uh, it's a, a, a blessing of a day for you. I, th- I think it's important for us to remember, you know, why, why do we celebrate Mother's Day and why do we as a church observe Mother's Day? It's, it's certainly not because uh, mothers are perfect. Mine is. Happy Mother's Day, Mom, as you're listening to this later, months later, belated Happy Mother's Day. Um, it's, it's not because mothers are, are perfect or, or even the institution of motherhood is uh, completely perfect. It, motherhood exists in a fallen world, right? And this morning, some of you are dealing with the reality of, of being in a fallen world that's observing Mother's Day. There are some of you who today is kind of a sad day as you think about maybe a mom who's gone or maybe a, a child who's gone or, or maybe a relationship with a, a mom that isn't what it should be because of the reality of living in a fallen world. Or, or maybe you're someone who has a desire to be a mom and, and that hasn't taken place in, in this world in which we live and the reality of being fallen and, and living in a fallen world. So, it's not because everything about motherhood is perfect that we observe Mother's Day, right? Motherhood is not the only way by which a, a woman can lead a life that brings glory to God, and so we're not celebrating it for that reason either, right? We celebrate Mother's Day because we recognize that, that we as a church have been blessed with the opportunity to encourage moms who mother in a fallen world, who mother fallen creatures. (laughs) We see our responsibility to encourage and strengthen them in that, right? And so, you know, this morning we we rejoice that God has given us mothers. We rejoice for those of us who are able, that we're able to, to tell our mothers happy Mother's Day. And we rejoice in the opportunity to encourage and strengthen moms in that task of, of shepherding children in a fallen world, giving them the gospel. They can believe in Jesus Christ and respond to that. And so be sure to pray for the moms in our church. We, are, we don't celebrate Mother's Day because mothers are perfect or because motherhood's the only way by which a woman can glorify God. We believe it's an important way that we as a church have the responsibility, the, again, joyous responsibility to encourage and pray for our moms. And so we're going we're gonna to do some of that this morning in just a moment. But if you're there in 1 John chapter 2, and if you're able, uh, please stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, 1 John chapter 2, and we're, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. And Father, we do thank you this morning for motherhood, for this institution you've given us, 
means by which your grace is observed in our lives in a variety of ways, in a variety of manifestations. And we, we thank you for the opportunity we have as a church to, to lift these women up in prayer. We would ask that you'd be gracious to them. We would ask that you'd be gracious to their children. We pray that you would provide means of support and encouragement for them. We pray that today would be a joyful day, not because everything in life is perfect, not because all relationships are perfect, not because all families are family structures or, or all manifestations of the family are, are perfect in this fallen world, but because you are a perfect God who has perfectly planned their lives for them and has placed them where you have for your reasons and placed each woman in here in the situation that she finds herself this morning for your purposes, your pleasure, your glory. Help us to support the women in our church in the ways that you've called them to minister and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what you have planned for your mother today, for Mother's Day, if you have the opportunity to, to call or, or give her something today, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to be able to top what Kevin Durant was able to do for his mom this past week. If you haven't seen the video, uh, Kevin Durant is a basketball player in the NBA. He plays for the Oklahoma City Thunder, and he was named the NBA's most valuable player for the 2013-2014 season this past week, he gave an acceptance speech. And the acceptance speech was, was good. He's a, he's a stand-up guy by all accounts, good, just a decent person. And then he got to the end. And I thought about playing the video, and then I thought, no, I want to be able to keep preaching and recover the service. And basically, know this, as he, I'm going to read to you a little bit of what he said, but just imagine, you know, this really tall, big guy, giving, saying these words about his mom, and it comes to the end of his speech, and it's a lot, his speech is actually a lot longer than what I'm going to say here because he keeps pausing because he's, he's so choked up emotionally. His mom is in the audience. She's crying. Everybody around her is crying, so it's a very emotional scene, right? And this is what Kevin Durant says at the conclusion of his MVP speech um, this, this last week. says, and last, my mom, I don't think you know what you did. He talks about his mom had him at a young age, and, she, and he says, the odds were stacked against us. Single parent with two boys by the time you were 21 years old, everybody told us we weren't supposed to be there. We moved from apartment to apartment by ourselves, one of the best memories I had was when we moved into our first apartment. No bed, no furniture. We all just sat in the living room and just hugged each other. We thought we made it. When something good happens to you, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to look back to what brought me here. You waking me up in the middle of the night in the summer times, making me run up a hill, making me do push-ups, screaming at me from the sideline at my games at eight or nine years old. We weren't supposed to be here. You made us believe. You kept us off the street. You put clothes on our backs, food on the table. When you didn't eat, you made sure we ate. You went to sleep hungry. You sacrificed for us. You're the real MVP. It's a pretty good Mother's Day speech, right? 
Can anyone argue that Kevin Durant really loves his mom? That his mom has a unique place in his heart. Imagine if you were to go to, to Kevin Durant and say, Hey, uh, Kevin, thought you should know something. Uh, I don't think your mom is a very nice person. I dislike her strongly. Um, in fact, I'm making it my life's ambition to do everything I can to destroy your mother. Do you think you and I could be like best friends? What do you think? How, how far do you think you'd get through that speech before he just kind of turned and walked away? What do you think the odds of you and Kevin Durant becoming really good buds if you didn't like his mom were? I'm going to guess pretty low. Why is that? Because a love for you, if you felt that way about someone that he loves so deeply, that'd be incompatible with the love for his mom, right? A love for someone that doesn't love his mom and, and his love for his mom, it'd be hard for those types of love to coexist within the same heart. They're incompatible. I saw a shirt a few weeks ago that had this on it. It's kind of an old joke, but it said, my favorite team is the Cardinals. My second favorite team is what? Anyone who plays the Cubs, right? And I'm sure you can appreciate that sentiment even if maybe you'd switch the teams, but I've never, since I moved to Central Illinois 14 years ago, I've never run into someone who says, you know what, I am just a really die-hard Cardinals and Cubs fan. I just love both teams a whole, whole bunch. No, love of one precludes you, it seems, from loving the other, and being a, a die-hard, passionate fan of one team means that you have very ill feelings toward another, and probably one of the last applications of the gospel to church in central Illinois is getting Cardinals and Cubs fans to come together and love each other. There's, there's competing love. They're incompatible. Incompatible loves. Imagine if uh, you were to come home and saw, met your wife there and she said, hi, honey, how was your day? Um, have some news for you. Uh, I've decided um, there's someone else in my life that I love, and I want to keep loving you, and I want to have our family here, and I'm going to start a, a new family with, with uh, this other person that I love. H how would that go over? It would go over poorly. You would rightly say, no, you, you can't do that. Those, those loves can't coexist, and, and to, to love another person means you've violated the love that we have for one another, the covenant love that we've made with each other. Those, that's a violation. Those types of love are, are incompatible. This morning we're talking about two loves that are incompatible, that cannot exist in the same human heart. We're talking about love for God and love for the world. And some of us, maybe, maybe not consciously, but, but some of us this morning are convinced that we can love both. And again, maybe we wouldn't consciously say, oh, yeah, I love the world and I love God. But in practice, we've said, I, I love God, we say that, but, but in our lives we reveal that we actually love the world. And we believe that we can kind of straddle two fences and kind of live in both worlds and, and have both loves. And I'm going to tell you this morning, it's not possible. Think of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. This may be kind of like a, a day like it was in 1 Kings chapter 18 with Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is on Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal are there as well, and the people of Israel are there, and Elijah is the only prophet of God, and there's all these prophets of Baal. And what does Elijah say to the people of Israel? He says, look, guys, 
how long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long are you going to go back and forth between saying, I'm going to worship Baal and I'm going to worship Yahweh? How long will you go limping forth between two different opinions? If, if the Lord, if Yahweh is God, worship Him and follow Him. But if, if Baal is God, then follow Him. It says, 1 Kings 18, the people didn't say a word. They didn't want to make a decision. Today may be a day that God is forcing you to make a decision. You've believed, okay, I can love God and then I can also love the things of this world. I can love the prestige that my job offers or that this position, this hobby offers me. I can, I can love my house and I can love my car and I can love my bank account. I can love these, these things of the world. I can, I can love that. I can still say I love God. And I hope as you leave this morning, you'll realize I, I can't. I've got to make a decision. These loves are incompatible. And there may be periods of time where I can, I can live like I love the world and I can live like I love God, but there's going to be moments in our lives where those things come into conflict. And, and my hope, my prayer this morning is that you, first of all, realize that. And secondly, say, I choose God. When it comes to the, the, the popularity I can have at school or God, I'm, I'm going to choose God. When it, when it comes between advancement in the workplace and God, I'm going to choose God. When it comes to, to, to things that are going to pull me away from my family or, or sports that are going to pull me away from some, some, some things and some situations that God, I'm going to choose God. And when it comes between uh, pursuing finances or pursuing God, I'm going to choose God because I recognize that I can't love both God and the world. Can't do it. Here's how I want us to go through this text. And, uh, you know, it's only three verses, and so I, I thought for sure we're going to get through this. We didn't first service, uh, and we're not going to do it first service. Either. We're going to spend two weeks in this passage, okay? And here, here's kind of what I want us to do as we go through verses 15, 16, and 17. We're going to go through verse 15, Lord willing, this morning. And I want us to, to look at verse 15, and I want us to see a command that is given. And then as we look at this command, we're also going to see a, an explanation for the command, a theological explanation for the command. And as we look at the theological explanation for the command of the command, we're going to understand what God is telling us to do and, and the theology behind what he's telling us to do. And then we're going to come to verse 16. And in verse 16, we see, okay, Here's what this, this looks like. Here's kind of a description of what it looks like to, to be in disobedience to the command. And we're going to understand exactly what it is that God is calling us to do or not do. And then we're going to come to verse 17, and we're going to see kind of a culmination of all this. And kind of the big idea, the culmination we're going to, to, to come to, the realization that I hope we come to, is that I can't love God and live like I love the world. Ultimately, that means that I just love the world. I can't say that I love God and live like I love the world, because ultimately that just means that I love the world. Okay? So let's, let's dive into it. Let's first of all look at verse 15, and we're going to see this command that's given, and then an explanation for the command, a com, uh, kind of the theology behind the command. Verse 15, 1 John chapter 2, 
Here's the command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's the command. Now, when you encounter this command in 1 John, it might seem a little bit strange for a couple reasons. First of all, John doesn't give a lot of direct instructions. He doesn't give a lot of imperative commands. Don't do this, do this. He says some really hard things, and, and you know, you're really challenged as you read through the epistle of 1 John. But in terms of frequency, John gives fewer direct instructions than, than any other than any other New Testament book. So it's kind of strange that he gives a command here and that he gives it so strongly. It seems all-inclusive. The world or the things in the world, it's a very strong command. It's also a little bit strange, I think, because it seems contradictory, right? The command to not love the world and love the things in the world seems to contradict things that John wrote earlier, like John 3.16, where he writes down what Jesus said. And what does Jesus say in John 3, 16? For God so loved the world, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So it, it seems to be a little bit of a contradiction. In fact, not only does God love the world, Scripture tells us, but God commands us to love the people in the world. So, for example, Luke chapter 6, Jesus says in in verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Verse 35, love your enemies and do good. So, God loves the world. God calls us to love the people in the world, even our enemies. And so, what does it mean, this command here, to to not love the world or the things in the world? I, I think we have to define our terms a little bit here, right? First of all, What does John mean when he says world here in verse 15? I I believe that John uses the world in a variety of ways throughout his writings. And here in verse 15, world refers to a system that is set in opposition to God. So here are God's people, and the world in 1 John refers to this, this system that is set in opposition to God's kingdom. So God's people are working to establish God's kingdom, and the world, as John uses the term here, refers to this, this system that is set against God and is actually working to undermine his kingdom. So, for example, we see this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, see what kind of love the Father's given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world, why the world does not uh, love, that does not know us, is that it did not know Him. Verse 13 of 1 John 3, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world, this system that's set in opposition to God, hates you. 1 John chapter 4, John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Instead, it's the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you're from God and overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Again, this world is this system that's in opposition to God. So God is establishing his kingdom. Jesus Christ reigns over this kingdom. The world doesn't recognize Christ's lordship, and so this world is is set in opposition to the things of God. 
They're from the world, verse 5 of 1 John 4. Therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, really, you should be able to kind of instinctively understand what John is talking about when he talks about the world. Experientially, you should be able to identify with what John is talking about when he uses the word world in this context in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. The world is a system that is in opposition to God's kingdom, and it, and it is inevitable that the world is in opposition to God's kingdom. Why? Because it doesn't recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. It's inevitable that a group of people who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord are going to be at odds with a group of people who say, Jesus Christ is my King, and what He tells me to do and was revealed to me in His Word about what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to be obedient to. It is inevitable that, that those systems are going to collide, right? And this doesn't mean that I don't love the people who are in the world, who aren't Christians. It doesn't mean that I can't coexist at times very peacefully with people who are not believers. I, I love my neighbors who would not confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and, and, and we live in, in harmony. We want the same things a lot of times. We, we all want to love our kids, and we all want to live in a, 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 nice, uh, a nice neighborhood. I mean, everyone agrees that I should mow my lawn more often. I mean, we're all in agreement with some of those things, right? We, we, we can coexist and, and live together. But it's inevitable that at times the things of this world are going to come into conflict. The system that's, that's set in opposition to God is going to come into conflict with people who would acknowledge Jesus Christ as the supreme authority of their lives. There's so many examples that we could, could give of this, right? Think of an article I read this, this last week about a, a court decision in the United Kingdom where the court ruled that some Christian parents, a Christian couple, could not be foster parents, could not enter into the foster care system because there was a potential that their children would imitate their beliefs. That the law, I think the word they used, the law had no place for Christianity. That it was possible for children there's too great of a risk of children being, and the word they used was, infected by Christian beliefs. How do we respond to that? Are we shocked that a, a world that doesn't acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord would find that a couple who does acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord aren't fit to operate in this world? It's sad, but I don't think we should be shocked by it. Richard Dawkins, you know, famous atheist, 
One time, he suggested that teaching your children to be Christian was, pantom- was, was paramount to, um, was equal to child abuse. In fact, he said it was that, that spiritual child abuse, he suggested, was worse than sexual child abuse. The world is at opposition with the, the ethics and the values and, and the way that Christians live. It's, it's inevitable. On a smaller scale, just this past week, maybe you read the story of the, the two twin Christian brothers who were getting ready to start a reality show on HGTV called Flip It Forward, and they were going to have this reality show, and, and then some, someone somehow found out that they were, and I think the network already knew they were, they were Christians, and it, in the past, they hadn't spoken any hateful words to anyone, but they had, they had voiced their, their Christian beliefs about abortion or divorce and, and uh, sexual morality. And just simply for holding those beliefs and articulating them, the network said, we, we can't have you be a part of the show. So I'm proud to announce my boycott of HGTV. I'm sure all the men will really join me in this. And now I'm against the network. No. Um, does that shock us? It shouldn't. When John uses the word world here, he's describing the system that set itself in opposition to God. And it shouldn't surprise us, and indeed we should be understanding, because people who don't believe that Jesus is Lord and that he has the right to dictate how people live and what we do and what we believe about things, they believe that the people who do see Jesus Christ as Lord are, are, are wrong and, and, and dangerous. And so whenever John says, do not love the world, he's not talking about people in the world. He's not talking about people who are in disobedience to God, not, not loving them. But he's saying um, that, that worldly system is not a system that you and I should, should love. And that brings us to another word we need to think about, and, that, and that's the word love. The word love here refers to cherishing or valuing refers to cherish or valuing. And so what John is saying is, look, the things of this world are not to be the things that we set our our hope and our desires and our value on. We don't love the the, the temporary things of this world, the prestige, the the systems that set themselves in opposition to God. That's, That's not what our heart's focus is on. Now, you and I are commanded to love the things that God loves. Leviticus 19, 18, he says, love your neighbors yourself. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, he says, love the sojourner, love the foreigner. Uh, John 13, he says, uh, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, okay? And so we are to what? We're to love God. We are to value God. We're to cherish God. We're to set our hope and our trust in God alone. And, and here's, here's the picture. John now gives us a theology. Okay? He says, look, don't love the world. Don't value the things of the world. Don't set your hope and your trust in the things of this world. And he says this, because if you love the world, the love of God is not in you. What's the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, every part of your being. And what that means, and this is so important for us to grasp, 
to understand this command and, and the theology behind it. What this means is that every part of my being loves and worships Yahweh God. He is my supreme value. There's, there's nothing else in my heart that competes with my affection for Him. And then my love for God flows into love for others. I, I love the poor because I love God and He loves the poor. I, I, I love the orphan because God loves the orphan. I love the widow because God loves the widow. I, I have a passion for God, and that passion for God flows into my love for others. I love my children because I love God. I, I love my spouse because I love God. I love my enemies because I love God. I love you because I love God. I can't have that passion and love and fervent commitment to God while at the same time loving things and this system that sets itself up in opposition to God. You see that? Theologically, those, those things can't go together. I can't say, I, I love the prestige that... that um, that, that fame might bring me in the eyes of my, my company or the world or, or my family, the, the, the prestige. I, I can't love that and love God at the same time. These types of love, this love that John is describing here is a self-centered love. And I can't be thinking about myself and, and trying to benefit myself, a, a selfish love, while at the same time sacrificially loving God, having an ex external focus on Him. Th those things, they can't coexist. And some of us, we've been living that tension. We've been living in a place of tension, thinking, I can hold on to both. I can hold, I can, I can do it. I know sometimes it gets a little uncomfortable. I, I can do, I can love both. You, you, you can't. You can't do it. That's the command. Don't love the world. Don't love the things of the world. God says that not to be the, the so-called cosmic killjoy, ruining your life and making you live some, some uptight, unfun life, but he says that because he loves you and he wants you to experience the fullness of his love and joy. Okay, that's the command, that's the theology of the love. Now let's get a little bit more practical. Let's look at verse 16. And we're going to begin looking at verse 16 this morning, and we're going to see... Uh, what, what this means, kind of, kind of a description of, of what it means, kind of his definition of the world. And as he just defines the world in, in some broad terms here, we're going to see what it means to love the world and what we're not supposed to be doing. So in verse 16, he's going to say, for all that's in the world, and then he gives some examples of things that are in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possession, all that is not from God, it's from the world. Okay, so here's, here's the first thing that I want us to see from verse 16, and, and here's where your notes begin. You can stop drawing stick figures, and you know, I got something to fill in the blank. First, this loving the world means you're unwilling to resist your physical desires. He says, uh, "All that's in the world." And the first thing that he mentions is in the world is the, the desires of the flesh. No, no, what does that mean? The word "desires" is not necessarily a, a negative word. So, for example, in in Philippians chapter one, uh, verse twenty-three, Paul says, "Look, I'm." I'm hard-pressed between going home to be with the Lord or staying with you and ministering with you. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, and that's far better. Now, 
Is it wrong to desire to want to be with Christ? No. Right? Paul would use this, the, the same word in 1 Thessalonians 2.17. Um, we're away from the brothers for a short time, in person, not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Is it wrong to want to see other Christians? Shake your head. No, that's, that's not a bad thing. It's good. Wanting to see other Christians, good thing. But desire can also be bad. So, for example, in, in James, James would say each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. And desire, when it is conceived, gives birth, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Paul tells Titus, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions, desires, pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And so here, these, these desires are, come from a different source, and these desires essentially enslave a person, living in malice and, and, and hatred toward one another, and just kind of following the, the sensual lifestyle. That's bad. So what kind of desires are these in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16? He says the first desires he's talking about here are desires of the flesh. This is describing the desires of the physical body. The NIV translates it the, the cravings of sinful man, and that's a, an accurate description, I think, of what John is getting here by this phrase, the desires of the flesh. Now, the Bible, sometimes people think, well, the Bible doesn't understand how, how real physical desires are. The, the Bible doesn't understand uh, human sexuality or, or the desires of the flesh. And I think that's not true. The Bible understands the reality of, of physical desire, be it sexual or, or physical appetites or how we struggle with, with, with just living in the flesh. Paul in Romans 1.24 would say, you know, God gave people up to the lust of their heart, to the desires of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And so Scripture recognizes the reality that, that there's desires of the flesh that we have and, and there's a real impulse to act upon them. I want to be really careful here. I want to be really careful as we talk about this. I think there's a real danger that, that exists as we, as we talk about what's meant here by the desires of the flesh. One of the ways this manifests itself, this desires of the flesh, one of the ways is that the world manifests this, world manifests this is um, to live lawless lives, Right? And I think if you were to describe uh, sexual ethics from a non-Christian standpoint, I, I think you would, you would have to say, ultimately it boils down to this, whatever you desire to do that doesn't harm other people should be your ethic. That, that's, that's the sexual ethic apart from Christianity. Look, what, what, doesn't, what brings you pleasure but doesn't harm others, that's what you should do. That's, that's the standard by which a person can gauge whether or not a certain action is right or wrong. Does it bring you pleasure and does it not harm other people? That's kind of the, the basis of ethics. Scripture describes that as, as lawlessness, okay? It's lawlessness. And 
I hope we would all agree that lawlessness is counter to the gospel message. Living in the desires of the flesh and saying, hey, whatever my body desires to do is going to be my, my standard for what's right or wrong. Hopefully, you would agree, okay, that's, that's wrong. That's, that's not what we're supposed to do. That's, that's a wrong way to live life, to say, hey, whatever I desire to do is what I'm going to do. And I would go so far as to say this, a person who preaches that sexual ethic, according to John here, is denying the gospel. A person who preaches sexual or physical licentiousness, gluttony, or, or in whatever forms of sexuality you want to exist apart from the union of, of marriage, like lawlessness bad, anti-gospel. A person who proclaims that message not preaching the gospel. But, but here's what, what we as conservative evangelical Christians need to understand. And those of you who are young, who are old enough to understand the words that I'm saying, I, I hope you especially listen to what I'm saying here. And those of you who are parents of adolescents, I hope you grasp this as well. So lawlessness, that's desires of the flesh, bad, anti-gospel, Right? But, but understand this, legalism is not the answer to lawlessness. Legalism is another way to gratify the desires of the flesh when it comes to morality, and specifically this morning, sexual morality. Legalism saying, okay, I know lawlessness is bad, and so I don't want to do that, but I'm going to take this pledge, or I'm going to agree to not do this, or I'm going to set these fences, and, and because, I've, because, I, because I have done these things with my body, now I'm acceptable to God. Uh, purity is a means, purity causes me to, to be right before God, and, and, and let me let me just stress to you parents and, and young people and, and, and all of us who, who may struggle with the desires of the flesh, legalism is not the answer to lawlessness. Paul and Colossians would say, look, those of you who make rules like don't handle, you know, do not taste, do not touch, that those things are of no value in combating the desires of the flesh. They're, they're, they're useless. What we see in Scripture is that the answer is not to create a bunch of rules for ourselves by which we say, now I've achieved holiness. The answer is to pursue God with our whole entire beings and let the rules flow from that. Let our conduct and our standards and the decision we, decisions we make flow not from legalistic ideas about how we'll achieve righteousness, but from an understanding of I am a sinner, the desires of the flesh are still very much within me, I love God, and because I love God, I believe the gospel, I believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ in my life, and even though I have not achieved perfection completely yet, it is an ongoing pursuit by the grace of God in which I am engaged. Brothers and sisters, young people, if we preach a message of, of legalistic purity, 
we are setting ourselves or our children up for a lifetime of disappointment. I read the story, a little bit of the story of Elizabeth Smart recently, and you know the story, of, she was abducted, right? And she would, I can't remember her exact words, but she was abducted, she was assaulted over, over months, and uh, she was missing, and uh, she had encountered a form, I, I believe, of legalistic purity. And she, as she had been abused by her captors, she came to believe that she had no value any longer. She believed that she was, was, was what she was at, damaged goods or something, and, and now no longer, because of what had happened to her physically, no longer had value. And so many of our young people maybe aren't in, in that type of situation, but there have been mistakes, there have been, there have been things that have come into life, as is true of every life, that have caused them to say, I, I don't know, I don't know if I, I can still pursue God, I don't know if I can still be found acceptable to God because of, of how I've responded to the desires of the flesh. Look, the gospel message is good. The gospel message is about freedom. The gospel tells us, look, our bodies are not our own. We've been bought with a price by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, I honor God in my body. Listen to what Scripture says. As Scripture refuses us to live our lives according to the flesh. Here's the gospel deliverance. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts, Paul says. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a, a pure heart. And so there's this, there's this turning away from these, these youthful desires, from the desires of the flesh, and, and there's a, a pursuit of righteousness, not based upon our own works, but upon uh, those who, who cry out to God from a pure heart. God, God, save me in this area of my life. I don't love the world. I don't love the desires of the flesh. I love you, and I know that these loves are incompatible. I love what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. He says, you've been raised with Christ. He's just talked about how ineffective legalism is. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand about Colossians 3. He doesn't say, first, hey, put to death all immorality. Just work really hard, take a purity pledge, sign this paper, do this thing, put up this internet block, do, do this, and, 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 and just, just, just do, 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 do. That's not what he says. He says, no, 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 hold on. Legalism, completely ineffective. Here's the gospel. Here's Jesus. You have died with Christ. You have a new master, a new Lord, a new love. Now, put to death. The things of the world. Now put to death the things that are earthly in you, like sexual immorality, 
impurity, passion, even evil desire, and covetousness. And all that is what? What does he say it is? It's idolatry. What is it? Idolatry. What does that mean? It means that idols cannot exist comfortably in the same heart that loves God. Love of God and love of idols, love of the things of this world, cannot coexist. How do we put to death the desires of the flesh? The gospel. Love of the Father. Love of the Father cannot exist in the same heart with the love of the things of the world. I want you to just meditate on that this week. Some of you have, have struggled with the desires of the flesh, and you say, but this is not who I want to be. Now, now if this morning you can say, you know what, I love, I love my own, st- I, I still believe my only standard for morality and the desires of the flesh is what makes me feel good as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Who cares? Look, just, just understand, love of God and, and love of yourself as your own master can't coexist in the, in the same heart. But maybe some of you are like, I do love God, and yet I still see the desires of the flesh in my heart. What can I do? Love God. Pursue God. Ask for God as you love him, as you seek his face, as you seek righteousness, to help you put to death the things of the world. And as, you're, as you have a passion and a love for God alone and God, ultimately allow that to flow into the things that you're willing to do, to, to turn away from the things that cause you not to pursue God fully. So, you, so maybe you do put up the internet block or you do uh, make some accountability decisions and you do make some of those, those, those fences decisions, but you don't think that those decisions are going to cause you to, to love God. You love God and that love for God causes you to make decisions that are going to, to keep you, decisions to turn away from things that are going to keep you from pursuing your greatest love, God. Do not love the world with the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let's pray. Father, we do love you and we want to love you more fully. We pray that as we continue to look at this passage next week, you'd, you'd give us grace to, to put to death the, the things of the flesh that are within us and, and cause us to have a love for you that, that supersedes everything else in our life. Give us your grace and, and, your, and give us you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.